episode 34 of G.I. Joeberg, the Netsony podcast about G.I. Joe, coming to you from South Africa. My name is Steven, and as always I'm joined by my friends... Paul and... Robert. Hey! It's like Tomax and Zaymont, finishing each other's sentences. Except we're the, the Crimson Triplets. Oh, <laughs> oh what's a South oh, African oh. colour? Is there a distinctly South African colour? Oh, no, it's really clear. <laughs> Mineshaft red. <laughs> uh. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, fans of G.I. Joburg and or lurkers who just happen to find us through the World Wide Web, we are a fan cast about G.I. Joe, podcasting at random uh, whenever the mood takes us. And the mood does actually take us quite often. It's just uh, not often we all have a confluence of free time and the will to function. We talk about G.I. Joe, and this evening, we're going to talk about views that we have on G.I. Joe that the rest of the fan community don't necessarily hold. This is our Unpopular Opinions episode. Unpopular Opinions episode. Where the three of us are going to speak about things that bug us about G.I. Joe that everyone else seems to have no problem with, or alternatively, things that we absolutely love the rest of the community don't have time of day for. Anybody get anything cool in you in the last week or two? My mom got me an Armored Panther. It's okay. I like the <laughs> Oh video. yeah. Please check out Rob's video commentary on the Armored Panther. It is brilliant, actually. Uh, it's Wes Anderson cool, so I reckon you go and check it out. Please go in there with a sense of humor. If you take Rob seriously, you might kill yourself. So, you'll find yeah, him I on YouTube. It. You'll find him on, on YouTube under the handle No Clarity Here, all one word. You got uh, two right. reviews up, haven't you, Rob? Yes, I did that one, and then I also did a review of the uh, Eagle Hawk, which is a bit unconventional. Oh. Yeah, so you can check that one out too, and it's it's fun. Tell us more. Tell and, us. Um, tell us a bit about your your process. Oh well. <laughs> The process for the original one was for the Eagle Hawk one. So I thought it would be interesting to have characters interrupting the review process. It turned out with the good results. Uh, I might try that again. And then the other one was basically just trying to spoof really bad, uh, bad examples of reviews that I've seen. People holding holding the cameras, moving around, and it's focusing on the wrong stuff. Because the there's, no, there's no shortage of those on YouTube. Exactly. There's not but, enough of yeah. those out there. <laughs> I'm very grateful that there's a, a new player in the YouTube toy review field. One with a sense of humor. I know I personally found them very entertaining. And I'm not biased at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Go on, Boca! St. Africa! It's <laughs> I'm a big no. fan of your artful use of the cell phone camera looking at the floor while you're talking. <laughs> I really love that. And I also love your attention to child safety. You know, when a child gets a toy, bad things can happen. There are sharp points. And I really love that Rob tackled it. He tackled it in such an artful manner that I actually felt a lot safer uh, letting children buy these toys. <laughs> so you know, I don't feel... Check out No Clarity here on YouTube for so much more than just a toy review. Exactly. And and soon I'm going to do a comparison between a, a couple Masterpiece uh, Transformers tapes 
versus the uh, original text. Well, not really original, more like reissue original text. That's my next video. It'll probably be oh. up by the time this is out. Oh. For those that don't know what a tape is, it's a small plastic uh, box. Very <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> can you adequately describe what is a tape? Well, a that, that tape. is actually a cassette tape, yes. It's what old people yes. used to listen to. Uh, we used to pirate in the old days before we had MP3 players in the internet. That's how we used to show our affection to the ones that we loved. Uh, <laughs> a mixtape! A mixtape? <laughs> All my feelings for you in like five songs or less. <laughs> wiki, wiki. <laughs> we also have another like kind of a side topic. It's nothing too major, something we've kind of covered Wait, before. On. I still got new stuff. Oh, sorry, Steve, actually, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, Steve. Okay, let's have it. Alrighty. I finally scratched the itch to have a 1984 Duke, a toy that is Mr. G.I. Joe, but for the longest time, I've never owned one. And there's certainly a mystique to this old guy. It's a nicely put together Franken Joe. And has just the right mix of reuse parts and original parts to make him a worthwhile figure. And let's face it, if you love or hate Duke, regardless, it's a necessary character on the team. I don't Definitely. think you can really envision a G.I. Joe team without its first shirt. And uh, I'm very happy to have it. It's a good figure with solid accessories, paint apps. In fact, one of the paint apps is a little cause for concern. It seems that over time, the flesh tone that is used on his hands really is at odds with the flesh tone that his plastic molded head is cast in. Oh. So it does look like his hands are going a little bit green, I must say. Oh, hold them up to his cheek and, uh, and make that comparison because it is kind of sickening. He looks like he's zombifying. I, I think my favorite... <laughs> I think my favorite feature about that Duke is he's got a big smile, okay? And this is a kid's toy that you're, you're essentially using to shoot other guys. So he's shooting, like, Cobra officers and troopers and his tanks and whatnot with this big smile on his face. I love it. I think it's well, great. He's a man of action. He's all like, I love killing. Yeah. <laughs> Very sadistic. They don't really kill people. And that was featured quite nicely in a recent episode of the... Comedy series community, which was funny. <laughs> One of the community characters kills a cobra, and suddenly it's a huge issue with G.I. Joe. They don't kill them. They, you know, they, they, they sort their plans and they let them escape. And they kind of point out how ridiculous that is because then the war would just go on forever and ever and ever. So I thought that was quite funny. Well, the arms dealers are laughing all the way to the bank. And it occurs to me, like, Duke's not quite smiling in this head sculpt. I wouldn't even call it a grin. It's the kind of like half non-smile you pull when you're trying to get the attention of some hot chick across the way, but accidentally yeah. her ugly friend turns around and looks at you and smiles back. It's that kind of like, yeah, you like they're like almost smiling, but actually quite disappointed and like goofy little grin. It's like, uh. Yeah. Uh, and then you sort of wave 
And then they wave back, and you sort of look, make it look like you're looking behind her, and then when she looks behind her, you quickly duck and run away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking from experience there, Paul. Maybe. You guys are really <laughs> mean. That's just awful. Hey, hey, it's uh, not us. It's Duke. Duke's yeah, the one Duke. making the face. Yeah, with his half-assed, uh, sinister grin. It's like, <laughs> you know, finally taking Scarlet upstairs to, you know, knock boots. And then you find out it's Zartan in a dress. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Or, or Hello, Duke. Or Scarlet's surprise, Duke is Zartan, which has actually happened. <laughs> so. Tonight's Wood Fire topic brought to you by Paul. G.I. Joburg's going to take three years in particular, 1984, 1985, and 
he's just found out that it's cool. So <laughs> it's got that in there. Um, I think this line for me is just kind of all of the Joes or a lot of my favorite Joes in the line in this year. And I think that's why I went for it. I can actually agree with Steven Summers why 86 could have been a better one. He mentioned it earlier. He mentioned how they both have jet. It's a good reintroduction of the line. But 85 is just, it's just a winner for me. It's just got some great characters, characters that we don't see again, actually, for a long, long time. We don't see Shipwreck again. We don't see Eels again. We don't see re-releases of Crimson Guards again. And these guys live in 85. I mean, there's no serpents even here. Same out in Tomax, which will never get a, a remake again until a convention exclusive sets. It's got stalwarts like the Ore Striker, which is a beautiful little buggy. Okay, I'm not so hot on an Armadillo, but Hydrofoil. And for those of you that know 85, you'll also know that it has the USS flag. Now, the USS flag is not the biggest draw card for 85 for me. And perhaps the way I'm looking at this is not very practical. I'm going purely from a I love 85 because of those characters. Then 86. To be quite fair, I think G.I. Joe really started for me as a kid for 86. My first Joe, as far as I know, was sci-fi. A lot of the characters that came along with sci-fi in this line are also very, very cool toys. Guys like the bats or the introduction of the bats in this line. Fantastic, fantastic toy, the bat. It's 86. It's, it's kind of when G.I. Joe, uh, like Steve mentioned, kind of reintroduced the line a bit, gave it a bit more color. Uh, we have some other personal favorites of mine, like the Vipers are in here, Strata Vipers are here, more of the Dreadnoughts, and then some of the coolest vehicles in the line, like the Night Raven, the Terrodrome, not technically a vehicle, but a playset. Awesome. Sorry, I, I know I'm overusing the awesome budget here, but <laughs> it's a cool line. But 85 still stands true for me because of the Snake Eyes, Shipwreck, Crimson Guard, and the Eels. Which Hang are on, I'm confused now. Which one is your top year? Uh, 85 is my top year. Okay. It's my favorite year of the three, yeah. I'm just saying, I'm just giving 86 a bit of a, the, the honor it deserves because it does have great toys in it, but it's my favorite. Well, let's put it this way. I haven't gone out of my way to get a lot of the 86 stuff, even though I do own some of the top of the crop here in some regards. And then 84, 84 has got some great characters in here. Uh, I'm sure if I was sort of more than a eating, pooping three-year-old or four-year-old, and the 84 line is maybe the 87 line. I would have probably gone for this a bit more because I would have been more in touch with these characters. But I must be very honest. I didn't know characters like Spirit or Duke existed for a very, very long time. I know that this line has got, this has got Cobra Commander. I didn't know Baroness existed for a very long time. Storm Shadow's in here, his introduction, but my introduction was the 88 Storm Shadow. Right. And a lot of these faces and a lot of the people in here and a lot of the vehicles in here are actually very unfamiliar to me, just from a sort of core primal G.I. Joe collecting level. So I don't have a lot of affection for this line from the get-go. But that's not to say it's a bad line. I mean, it's got some of the, the most beautiful pieces in the line, and they're all on one page in Bellamo's book. It's got the Cobra Claw, the Rattler, and the Whale on one page. There's not enough page here for all the awesome that is happening there because, oh my word, those are great toys. So it's just difficult for me to say I unashamedly love 84, and that's why it's my least favorite of the three. Come on, Everyone try has their own personal it. biases. This is a very subjective topic, but of course. I'm very glad that uh, we are not in agreement. Good. Excellent. <laughs> we should all have our okay. flavor. Yeah, minus pineapple. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So... Although Paul absolutely loves 85, I rank 85 number three. 
Why? Because it has the original version of the Armored Panther, the Armadillo. <laughs> <laughs> and it comes with the most expensive vehicle ever in history of toys, USS Flag. There's no way, even if it was alive back then, that I could afford that thing. I would have I hated think the price 85. Was, uh, was beaten by the Defiant. Yeah, I have to yeah, agree there. Yeah, so. But yeah, I would it's, never it's, been able to get that here. It's gigantic. So that's why I hate 85. It has, a, it has something that I can't possibly have. And also, I mean, there's a bunch of really cool characters, but there's also like two Dreadnoughts. So I <laughs> Three Dreadnoughts. Oh, Lord. Yeah, he's right. I think it's Buzzer, Torch, and Ripper. Oh, yeah, you're right, actually. Let me look in the book. <laughs> validate my claim. Yeah, Ripper, Torch, yeah, Buzzer, Ripper, and Torch. Buzzer. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't knock this year because of Tollbooth. But okay, knock it for you not. <laughs> Tollbooth is okay. I mean, there's some nice figures in this year. Obviously, Snake Eyes, version 2. I mean, I, I love that sort of night look, look that he has. But, um, nah. The best snake I've then, ever, dude. I like the one that I own. What, 1989? That one. He's got awesome play action. Wobbly leg kick action. <laughs> I love because, of course, that is your original from 1989. I wish I still had he's mine. He's absolutely, absolutely, it's a gorgeous. I, I just love that one. I mean, I know it's maybe not the most iconic look. Maybe this is an unpopular opinion I have. But um, I really do prefer 89 to 85. Damn, I could actually have used that. Anyway, cool. So 85 is my number three. And then my number two is 86. Okay, 86 is brilliant because it has so many restart figures. Like, you know, you have a new there's, there's Hawk. He's the leader again. He's in charge, and he has a whole bunch of replacement Joes. But there's also certain looks of characters that I don't really like, like... Um, the roadblock of that year doesn't look too cool. And once again, there's a minimum of three dreadnoughts in this year. <laughs> <laughs> and the more, the worst ones. Like I, I could maybe live with Torch Buzzer and Ripper, but I cannot with Serana and Andar. <laughs> maybe Monkey Ranch, but no thanks. And also, it's also the first year uh, that Oh, God, just get me started on him. Yeah. You know, my brain actually blocked I, out this Dreadnought Air Assault crap and the Dreadnought Ground Assault crap. Well, uh, they're very exclusive. Sick. Like, you're yeah, not likely no. to get those, so they effectively Never. don't exist for you, Paul. Well, mostly because they're crap, but, yeah. <laughs> and well, the game, right. Dreadnoughts are much-needed vehicles. You had a biker gang with no bikes. They had a thunder machine and, and pretty much not, out, not anything else. So got giving them a repainted stinger and a repainted fang and a repainted or redecoed I should say Skyhawk and a swamp fire it actually gave them some means of getting around. Yeah. So we're beginning a point here. Yes. We're talking about why I don't like it. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then the vehicles. I mean, there's a nice array of vehicles. I mean, you know, obviously the Raven and the Tomahawk, but otherwise the vehicles. Uh, somewhat in mm, the Havoc, I don't like that Triple T, Recon Sled. Uh, I, I love sci-fi, but it's starting to creep into the line at this point. And it's a bit early for it, I think. Okay, so that's number two. 
And then my number one movie, 1984. Why? Because oh, yeah. there are some awesomely classic, iconic characters in here. Yeah. Original bitch, Baroness. She's down <laughs> there. There's a nice uniformity with this year. I mean, they're all wearing similar colors except for, you know, blowtorch and scrap iron. But there's, there's, a, there's a nice uniformity between the looks and a nice, like, breakdown. You know, there's... It's a very, very brown, black kind of line. You know, with characters like Spirit standing out quite dramatically. By black, you mean Roblox. Yeah, he's in there. And he's looking awesome. That's, that, a, that's cool a cool Roblox. Iconic. Exactly. And there's the, you know, the very cool Cobra Storm Shadow. And the figures are awesome. I mean, I'd love to own probably all of these figures, even Blowtorch. Blowtorch is cool. I would skip on Thunder a little bit just because of his oversized helmet. But without it, he looks pretty decent. It's not so bad in hand. Yeah. Uh, Definitely when you okay. get your hands on it. It looks like a helmet so beefed up cool. with gear. Everything's very original. It's very cool. And it's got Zartan. And I like that the helmets were still interchangeable at this stage. Yeah, people can still switch them around. You can change the looks if you wanted to. They all use the same basic helmet. So if you wanted to clip a visor on Duke's helmet, you could. And the variety of accessories are quite cool because you have a ninja dude in there. You have spirits. You have scrap iron with that awesome you know, launcher. I mean, they're still very cool things, and they all seem to be scaled a bit better, I think, still yep. at this point. So there's that. And then also the selection of vehicles. I could see myself getting all of these vehicles, like even the Asp. The Asp oh, is yeah. actually quite and the Manta. Cool. And the Bavua. And the Manta. The Asp and the, yeah, well, the, the Night Attack four-wheel drive Stinger Jeep just go so well together. Exactly. Yeah, the Asp is very yeah, sexy. The and there, the, orig- the original Cobra Rattle, and it's beautiful sort of black, bluey coloring. And I own a killer whale, and I love the killer whale. I can just see all of this being used wonderfully. And I mean, I've seen the Cobra Claw in real life. It's very overlooked, I think, as, as, a, as a good vehicle. And there's, there's oh, enough flying the stuff and um, water stuff. So it's, it's got everything. So there's land, sea, and air. And also, okay. they're, they're still doing some fun things with battle stations and stuff. You don't have to get another line to appreciate G.I. Joe, I think. I mean, yeah, there's not many army builders, you know, for the people who want dozens of guys, but they're all very individual, Individual, the characters that are provided in this event. I only disagree with you, Rob, in the ordering of your bottom two. You, oh would, put, you okay. would put 86 in the middle. I would put Above. 85 in the middle. Whoa. Okay, what are the reasons? Okay, well, 86, let's start with the figures. It is a reboot year, but the characters that emerged were less compelling. Because there were replacements of niches that were already filled earlier on, the characters kind of took on facsimile roles. And I know they try to tease it out in the cartoon because the cartoon obviously was a, a vehicle for the 1986 series quite prominently. The comic book seemed less interested. It dealt with each wave's figures while they were current, but then as soon as they stopped being current... They were just kind of lumped in with the rest. And never. no one from 86 really became enduring unless they were already major characters, like Hawk. So 86's characters yeah, came and went. Very appealing sculpts, but I don't think they are as enduring as... Well, they definitely aren't as enduring as a Duke and a Roadblock. And on the Cobra side, a Firefly or a Storm Shadow or the Baroness... Well, that's more down to the that's more down to the, the the characterization and the way that Larry Harmer built them up. He didn't just he didn't give them a chance. He chose to characterize them in a certain way. 
Well, he also was dealing with a smaller cabal of characters. And mm. in order to make compelling stories, he could only follow so many storylines. So to try and compound your book with these new characters and try and flesh them out, I think you're better served by just focusing on your core group and having these peripheral characters just be more perfunctory. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, they never really stuck for me. And and okay. I consider oh, them cute. now yeah. as an adult because, I mean, G.I. Joe, when I was a child, wasn't influenced by the cartoon at all, was marginally yeah. influenced by the comic books, but primarily just influenced by whatever I was seeing in toy aisles back in the day and the file mm. cards that were included. And sadly, by the time I really got interested in the toys, it was the 89 and 90 series, which are perhaps even less enduring characters. But in my playtime, they became something. They became my substitutes for Duke, for yeah, they Storm Shadow. Characters. They beca- mm. Yeah, exactly. They were G.I. Joe for me. 1990s sci-fi or Sonic Fighter Zap. I mean, these were my core group. Then the vehicle side of the fence, 86 has some fantastic vehicles, but it's got enough stinkers to kind of put me off. I can never get behind the Havoc, nor could I get behind the Stun. So effectively, the land component of 1986 doesn't really blow my hair back. Mm -hmm. The aquatic component as well, Devilfish and Hydro Sled are pretty lackluster. The Devilfish, at least, is a boat, even though it's one man assault craft. You know, the Hydra Sled just it's an appalling idea. I I can't I can't understand how anyone could think that was cool. And then don't forget the terror Well I'm gonna debunk uh, the Terradrome right now and say like it's boring. It's got no roof. All of those sections are basic repetitions. You know, it's got perhaps one or two too many refueling stations for its own good. It would have been yeah. better off making those rooms something else. It's got no way of connecting the bottom and top floor. Like as a playset, the Terradrome is symptomatic of what most of 1986 is symptomatic of, and that's less forethought, less technological mm-hmm. engineering design going into it. The Tomahawk is a standalone vehicle for me in 1986 because it almost seems like it was almost designed a year earlier and just released the year later. Mm. Because the Tomahawk picks up a desert theme That is completely absent from most of 1986. But in 1985, Mm. you've got Dusty, who picks out the the tomahawk coloring quite nicely. And you've got the Mauler, which is a tank cast in a desert scheme. So I get a feeling that the tomahawk is more at home in 1985 than 1986. This isn't my opinion on its own. I mean, I have heard this mentioned in other G.I. Joe forums. But what also suggests to me that it belongs in 85 is exactly how well thought through the mechanics of it are. It's got a massive amount of detail. And that's something that I don't see in, say, The Conquest, which has, you know, essentially a recliner bed for a cockpit. The Havoc, which similarly, you've got your guys sitting face down uh, in a vehicle that just, like, the engineering of it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It doesn't seem to have a function that I can believe. The canopy can't flip up unless you flip the gun chair up. And having your driver in an exposed position above 
vehicle in a chair with guns on either side of him, which don't have any kind of ammo feed. Like, the G.I. Joe line went from being very, very well thought through and very, very heavy on the suspension of disbelief to just mm-hmm. creating toys that are very appealing and fun-looking but don't stand up to any actual scrutiny. Also, another thing just to add to 86 and just to what you're saying about the vehicles, I'd say a good 90% of these show up in the movie. So you've got uh, Serpentor's Air Chariot, the Raven, the Stun, the Pterodrome, the Tomahawk, the Triple T, the Havoc. These all appear in the movie. I think the reason that you get that disconnect with the Tomahawk considered for a previous line, and I also have to say the Raven seems out of place in this year as well. In some regards, it does feel like this was all cobbled together to be released um, to go with the movie. Uh, that a lot of this line was sort of pulled or rushed uh, in some regards to get it out in time to be on shelves when the movie hit the theaters. Well, because it was planning to hit theaters and then it went straight to, the, uh, to video. So a lot of everything that's happening here is movie-related vehicles, or at least uh, a build-up. You know, maybe maybe this was the line that encouraged them to put the right vehicles in the movie. I can't really say. It's, I mean, we don't really know. You touched on the Raven not seeming to belong in 1986's line. What that suggests to me is that when you compare it to the other jets in the line, its G.I. Mm-hmm. Joe counterpart, the Conquest, is mm-hmm. a more basic jet than the Raven. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have functioning landing gear. It's smaller. It doesn't have as many features. The Raven. It's got a different plastic. Absolutely. The Raven is yeah. envisioned as a more adequate answer to the Sky Striker. Because in 1984, the Rattler is once again a smaller aerial vehicle. It wasn't a comfortable match for the Sky Striker. It didn't have rubber tires. It didn't have landing gear that went down. It was a smaller, more compact jet. So the Raven is an answer to the question that was posed three years prior. But then it 1986s you by putting bright red highlights all mm. over the plane. So it yeah. does... <laughs> it might have its its motivation in earlier years, but it's definitely got a few aesthetic flares that were very 1986 on it, yeah. which are unfortunate. Um, well, it also seems like the Terradrome is the central point of this year in a lot of ways, especially if you look at what Cobra's complement is. Obviously, it's the AVAC, the BATS, Stratovipers, Vipers, you know, Serpentor. You've got all of these... Very good matches for the Terradrome. I mean, this is all the stuff you need for a Terradrome. Motor Viper, sorry. He's also kind of invisible to me. What defines the, the other two years under consideration, 1985 and 1984, for me, is while 1985 has almost the seminal Sunbow cartoon cast, it doesn't boast any significant Cobras. And I know you love the Crimson Twins. But yeah. I never quite enjoyed their role in G.I. Joe. If they were considered the money, if they were the suit-wearing, slick-as-all-hell, wheeler-dealers, I could buy that. And that was their role. But every mm. once in every while, they put on their circus freak outfits and got the tar kicked out of them because of their very useless feature of being able to feel one another's pain. Mm. If you ask me... If that's if that's an affliction that you have, you should be kept as far away from the battlefield as possible and not be doing no acrobatics on uh, the sides of buildings. I suppose that's what makes the cartoon kind of cool. They're very much a symptom of the cartoon. I mean, they're, they're, they're a joke unto themselves. And it's actually 
something I would like to get into one day on another episode if we talk about the cartoon in depth or anything like that. But Cobra, in a, in a lot of ways, is just a joke unto itself in the cartoon. Zaymouth and Tomax are up there. But as toys, and bearing in mind that I had them as toys before I ever saw them in the cartoon, they were these like badass twins. I never thought of them otherwise. And they were a very unique complement to my Cobra. They were Cobras with faces, which was also very different for me. Because it's also something quite unique in the 1985 line. There were the faces of Cobra in that line. But for me, speaking now in 2014, there weren't faces enough for 1985 to beat out 1984. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they were, you know, the same face. Precisely. The troops in 85 are great. Uh, I have no problem with those. They are superior figures to later, you know, plethora of vipers. Between oh, the Crimson God, the Eel, the Snow Serpent. Serpent. Just I mean, you've got three of the best there. Perfect, perfect, so. perfect examples of pre-viper specialized cobras. But you just can't beat having a series that boasts Baroness, Storm Shadow, Firefly, Scrap Iron. Yeah, okay. And Zartan, come on. That is my yeah, one-word that... answer for why 1984 rocks the hardest. Zartan, probably my favorite figure of all time. Yeah, we realized that in the episode, in our Deathmatch episode, when you beat everyone else. Yeah, and Zartan will Zartan. beat everyone else. Every G.I. Joe year released post-Zartan is just a shadow. <laughs> Give me Zartan. Uh, the Joe team as well, the figures, the figures are... There are memorable characters in 1985, Flint, Lady J, but you wouldn't be feeling like you're missing out if you had 84's characters over 85's. Because you've got Roadblock, you've got Duke, you've got Spirit. You've got other characters that, if only 84 had been one of the more mainstream years of G.I. Joe and not one of the more formative years, these guys would have become more fully fleshed out. By that I mean Ripcord and Ricondo. Very compelling, cool mm. figures that didn't get perhaps the attention that they deserved because they were flashes in the pan. They were very unique specialties that the Joe team needed, but they were released in a year that I suppose didn't get as much attention from the TV series. And the vehicles, well, what can, what can be said? You kind of said it all, Rob. They have a nice unity about them. There are interesting toys that you would very, very happily own all of. Uh, and there seems to be a good balancing of the toys and a nice common size. They're toys that don't stretch your, firstly, necessarily your budget, and also your space. They're all designed around playing with. A Night Raven's a great model, but what do yeah. you do with it? Pretend to take off, yeah. fly around a bit, put it back on the shelf. It's not like having a Vamp Mark II, loading it with guys and pushing it around the floor. Or Killer Whale, which is the largest piece of that year, is still a very fun and useful and usable toy. And the smaller battle stations are just plain cool. If I isolated just one year and that's all the G.I. Joe toys that I could own, I'd be pretty much okay with 1984 stuff. A good balancing of good and evil and a good balancing of equipment. Or maybe it's just because I've got a 1984 Duke staring at me with that crazed grin of his, holding that M32 pulverizer, yeah. and uh, not being too partial of how he uses it. 
Yeah. All right, so the rankings, if you've been able to keep any kind of tabs on this uh, debate of ours, I've decided that in order from least favorites to most favorites, I go 1986, 1985, and 1984. Woohoo! 85 was number three, 86 was number two, 84 was number one. Yeah, and mine was 84 is number three, 86 was number two, and 85 is number one. And Rob is only liking 84 because it has 90% less dreadnoughts than any of the other two. That's <laughs> well, right. Like 100%. No, it's got Zartan. <laughs> Zartan wasn't a dreadnought in '84. The term dreadnought didn't exist. It was not at all elicited that he had anything to do with a biker gang. Not from his file card. Not from his appearance. His connection to the dreadnoughts was completely erroneous, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. <laughs> I think Armor really just, just wanted to link them up for simplicity's sake. He's like, "Wow, this Cobra organization is getting way too fractious." Yeah, it's possible. But, uh, yeah, we're we going to chat about that just now. And so. Zartan comes with a bike. A wet bike. So let's link him with the biker gang. I'm just playing. Yeah, you're just playing. <laughs> we're going to get on to our unpopular opinions. But, with a twist, as we're likely to do, Paul and I are going to rattle off some unpopular opinions. Robert, on the other hand... Is going to represent the popular majority and just basically be a voice for why these opinions of ours are indeed unpopular and not held by the rest of the community and why we should be sheep and listen to what everyone else has to say about them. Yeah, peer pressure people. Align our views with the rest of the Joe fandom. So Rob's going to be playing devil's advocate all evening. Yeah, but not the cool Keanu Reeves one with naked people all over the place. Naked Charlize Theron? I don't know. Yeah. I like oh, Charlize what's... Theron just fine when she's being crushed by a spaceship. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> she should have survived. Yeah, she I could have rolled to the side. It was way too cartoon. Yeah, but then, but then they still like make it fall to its side anyway, so she would have eaten shit. <laughs> that's funny because I actually watched it the other night like two nights ago and yeah I was just like yeah if she ran to the side she still would have died (laughs) but anyway okay so who's gonna fire this off should I be the rebel the first rebel to go or should Steve be the first rebel to go I'll go because I I think this first one's not going to catch either of you by surprise okay I don't like modern era construction oh wow Jeez. Oh. The second Jeez. I heard you put this topic up, I was like, I was like, yep, this is this is gonna happen. <laughs> like I say, it's it's no surprise to anyone, and maybe it's no surprise to you, dear listener. After all, I am the voice of all things vintage on this podcast. I'm gonna mention why modern era construction sucks in four concise points. Number one. The crunch joint. It now exists below their pectorals, whereas it used to exist just above their hips. Therefore, on the vintage toys, this joint was adequately concealed by the divide between a character's trousers and their shirt. Now, I know what you're thinking. You can easily hide 
that divide by putting on web gear. Well, what if I want my figure to be exposed? Not wearing any kind of jacket or anything like that. It's unsightly and unnecessary. I don't fully understand the reason for its placement. I think it's far more natural to have a figure bend on their abs than their upper torso. Point number two. Back plugs. Why, oh why, did they decide to throw away some 25 years of backpack accessories and vehicle designs that use back plugs to secure your figure in such an arbitrary fashion? I know that there's no longer a need for a screw to hold modern era figures together, but that doesn't mean you need to necessarily make it as slim and small and low profile as possible. The hole in a figure's back has never bugged me. And I suppose it's linked to the fact that the ab crunch is now sitting below a figure's pectorals because the hole, had it been larger, mm. would be right on that joint. So point two kind of needs point one in order to work. My third problem with modern era construction and it's a follow-on from the back plug, but foot peg holes. Once again, you're throwing away 25 years of vehicle design, playset design, and accessory design by not allowing your modern era figures to have the same foot peg holes as the originals. And yes, they were bigger, but I don't think there's anything prohibiting a modern era figure's foot from having a hole that size. And it would allow interactions with toys that I thought the 25th anniversary and beyond were supposed to be honoring in the first place. What's so appealing about the vintage line is that there's such a nice synergy between figures, vehicles, and even vehicles and playsets themselves, or vehicles and vehicles. There was a great deal of interactivity. All that got kissed goodbye when they decided to opt for this new style of construction. And granted, maybe it wasn't expected to take off the way it did. But the situation we sit with now is that we have old toys that we'd love to play with but don't because they don't interact with our new toys, which we also love to play with. The last reason why the modern era figure construction sucks, they're just a little too tall. It, it always comes back to the vehicles. They don't interact well with the vehicles. Particularly, G.I. Joe vehicles from the vintage line reimagined and retooled and very awkwardly placed into the modern era line. It's fan service because we all wanted an Eagle Hawk, but it needs to be carved out and gutted in order to make modern era figures look remotely comfortable in them. Mm-hmm. And then you have bizarre choices like not having any kind of back plug system. If you're retooling an old vehicle to make it compatible with the modern era figures, how could you leave out such an important detail? It's not like it was absent of the original version Tomahawk and they were improving upon it by putting it in. No, it was something that was very prominent on the original Tomahawk and then just erroneously omitted for the Eagle Hawk. Anyway, hindsight is 2020. Maybe they figured that the foot pegs would be adequate. But that's just mm-hmm. hell of awkward, and anyone who's tried to stick there... They don't work. Thank you. Sorry. They're crap. 
Sorry. I so that's it. I, I, I dislike modern era construction because of the waist joint being moved up, the back plug being too small, the foot plugs being too small, and the overall figure size being increased to effectively four inches, which makes them unable to properly interact with vehicles and equipment from the vintage line and makes them look definitely at odds with their little vintage cousins. Everything you're bringing up is very much sort of an older collector problem. You're trying to integrate everything with your vintage stuff. But I think, yes, they're trying to service older people by showing off all of the older stuff, but they're also trying to appeal to a new market, a new aesthetic. Like the movement of the creating the crunch point allows better articulation in the legs. There's a lot more freer movement now than there was before. And also the construction of the figure is more robust because now you don't have the, the O-ring, which was always a problem, and which degrades over time. These I figures will that. last a lot longer, because they're, they're more simply built, and probably a lot easier to fabricate and put together. I don't know how these things work, but I'm sure fabrication of these figures is a lot easier and cheaper. And then once, once you start realizing this is meant for today, and yes, you know, they make compromises for all the collectors, but back plugs and foot plugs, they work with what they're doing today. All the stuff, you know, if necessary, it all fits together. They've created new things like the, the vests and everything else to give you other ways of customizing your characters instead of creating, you know, a uniformity and a homogen, you know, homogen, I don't know, like making everything so everything go together. Homogeneity? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Homogenous. <laughs> it just sounds like a good word. I like oh, it. Hey. Well, a, uh, everything within sort of the modern era works to get... Yeah, symbiotic. Everything within the modern era stuff does work together nicely in general. And yeah, they're too tall, but too tall for, yeah, vintage older collectors. They're a good size for what they are. They're a bit leaner. You know, being a little bit taller also makes them, I, I think, more proportionately correct to what actual people might look like instead of squashed yeah, the older figures are awesome, but they, to me, they are, now after seeing these guys, they look very squashed. They all have a uniform height. Well, these guys, they look more anatomically correct. And the modern era does also introduce a lot of nice articulation, you know, especially in the legs and the, the double knee joints. So I think all your points are probably valid, but they're valid for people who are following the older toys, who come from an older era. I don't think these are issues with people who are collecting perhaps these exclusively and reintroducing vehicles and, you know, using them. Yes, maybe it is a concession to all the fans, but also it's, it's a way to allow them to reuse things and just customize them, perhaps not to fit these figures correctly all the way, but I mean, they still look good in them. I know Rob's playing devil's advocate. Can I, can I throw in an opinion or two? By all means. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry. Sorry, God. Sorry. Um, I agree with Steve in part where he says that the back hole and the foot pegs for the figures had to be changed. I agree with Steve. I actually share the same point. I honestly think that they could have somehow managed the same size foot pegs in the modern era Joes, at least to a degree. And I think that would have been great to harmonize the line, especially uh, with vintage figures perhaps maybe fitting with more modern releases, if vintage fans do that, but I don't think they do, to be honest. 
And another thing, the back plugs. I don't think it is that much of a challenge to get right, as one may think. I think there is enough room. I think, if anything, the backpack would have to be held a little bit higher or maybe even a little bit lower, but we would still be able to get a desired effect, and it would be cool to have, for example, a custom modern-era annihilator, and you don't have to go and hack some old annihilator backpack with a modern peg to make it fit. It would have also eliminated problems like the Eagle Hawk's um, seating arrangements. So those kind of things are easier. Bearing in mind that when the modern era was first released, they didn't have backpacks, which was actually a very bizarre thing. I'm not Hasbro. I can't say why they didn't do it, but I do agree with what Steve said there. I think it's a a good point, the the backpacks and footpacks thing. As far as harmonizing them, as far as old collectors wanting to harmonize the new figures, you know, the thing is we spend a lot of money on this stuff, especially when we go online and we go and buy vintage things. We spend between 300 and 900 dollars sometimes um in worst case scenarios you know like i mean when we buy things like flags and whatever so it wouldn't hurt if it was sort of a little bit more compatible with some of the modern era stuff i can't honestly think that hasbro re-released the modern era uh, originally with the intention to appeal to new fans I think the intent was always to appeal to the original fan base and somehow the message got broken up somewhere because then all of a sudden modern era as a toast to fans of the old series became 50-50 lukewarm movie figures with weird re-release of old vehicles with firing missiles. So it's it's kind of a mixed bag. I know where Steve's coming from with the modern era. Just like I do agree with Rob I do agree that the proportions on the modern era figure, for me, are more aesthetically pleasing. I do prefer the thinner, slimmer look. I also do like the fact that they're taller. I do understand the limitation of the height, and there is unfortunately nothing that they're going to be able to do about that. And I think the onus should have been placed on the fans originally when modern era came out. Instead of kissing Hasbro's butt and telling them how amazing they are, they should have complained about stuff like back plugs and foot uh, pegs in the beginning. And I'm surprised they didn't. I learned that Justin Bell actually didn't like the 25th anniversary toys. I wished he had been more vocal then. Yeah. It does seem often like he's just heaping praise on for the sake of never... uh, Upsetting Hasbro. (laughs) Well, he's grateful for the fact that there are new toys at all. And that's perhaps a view that most of us could take. But if you really have a legitimate axe to grind... And if you're in a position to get your word out, as he is, he's in a very vocal, central position for our hobby. I'm surprised he didn't really voice concerns about why the 25th anniversary figures needed a few tweaks. But I think his concerns were mainly about the limitations on the elbow bends. I'm not sure he ever had a problem with the scaling being larger. Or the foot pegs. Yep. So I guess I'm the only one waving that flag. No, but let's I'm move on. Paul, why don't you give us one of your unpopular opinions? It's difficult for me to, to sort of um, ascertain if this is an unpopular opinion because comic publishers, IW and Marvel, seem to be making doing more of this. The cartoon never touches it, so it puts it in a very weird position. But Scarlet and Snake Eye's relationship bugs the living shit out of me. 
I'm sorry, I don't like them being together. I I think it's cute and everything, but I don't know. It's just it's gotten to a point. I'm tired of it. It upset me. I've been reading a lot of the early 90s uh, releases of the comic books where Snake Eyes and Scarlet's relationship is kind of a focal point in a novel run, and I really despise it. And from what I understand, the fan base as a as a whole doesn't seem to mind it. They actually like it. They're all very happy with the ninja being with the redhead. And also in the modern IDW books, they had a love triangle scenario sort of going on with Helix, Snake Eyes, and Scarlet. I'm sorry. I don't like that setup at all. I don't like Snake Eyes being embroiled in some kind of romantic drama. Bold and beautiful, man. I can't stand it. You know, and a lot of people might think I'm not a romantic or whatever. I am. But I don't believe that G.I. Joe is the forum for it. And at least, even if there are like couplings and there are people that like each other and there is affection being thrown around, it doesn't have to be done bold in the beautiful style. It also doesn't have to be the focal of a story. You know, when, well, when I Daniel declare, is... Paul Lopesher, are you a romantic? <laughs> you know, I just think there's a time and place for everything. And I like the idea of, for example, when Flint and Jay are playing off on each other, their relationship's on a focal point. It's kind of cute and behind the scenes and there's these little jokes and whatever between them. It's almost Firefly-like with uh, Hal, and I can never remember Marina Vakarin's character's name, but it's always there. It's cute, but it's never fully realized, and that kind of gives it a much stronger presence for me than, oh, I'm so upset with Snake Eyes because he hasn't proposed to me yet so that we can go and live in the mountains with our dog. I'm sorry, fan base, but come now. It's just lame. I don't know. Maybe you guys have a different take on it, but I think that the Scarlet Snake Eyes relationship thing is pants. I don't dig it. And I also, by extension, do not like the sort of tension that is now created in the Resolute animated short series where there's supposedly some kind of friction between Snake Eyes and Duke over Scarlet. I thought it was funny when they did it because it's kind of a nod to the fans, but that doesn't really exist at all in the cartoon, and in the cartoon's better for it, and it exists too much in the comic book. It is a feature that upsets me. So what do you guys think? I think you really conveniently selected the weakest, lowest ebb of the Marvel comic for your example. Fair enough, because the thing is that it is on the top of my mind. Uh, you are, of course, referring to where Scarlet infiltrates Cobra and becomes a Cobra agent and winds up gunning down Hawk. Yeah. Is it Hawk? That whole, that whole thing. But it's a little bit before that. It's just... There's this whole... Now, when I say this, listeners, please understand. Uh, I know I'm going to tread on some sexist ground here, but I'm all for a strong female character. I really am. But Marvel did this thing in the 90s with Mary Jane, and they did the same thing with Scarlet for me. Is They created the princess that has been rescued from the castle that now wants to find independence and strength and their own identity, which I'm full on. Please, by all means, everybody should do that. But they just do it in such a way that they write these characters, these women that are strong women, to be very weak people. And it irritates me. And I don't like the idea of Scarlet sort of almost in a weird way running after Snake Eyes. It's a little bit old school, even for the 80s and the 90s. And then to have it echoed again now at the time of this podcast, 2012, 2013, 2014, in some of the IDW books, I just find it irritating. I find it's something that gets in the way uh, of G.I. Joe as a whole. Like I've mentioned earlier, I don't think it needs to be there. 
Robert. Are you uh, going to rush in support of Snake Eyes and Scarlet's <laughs> romance? I think it was a necessary element. I mean, you couldn't just always have the focus being on war the whole time. I mean, there had to be more to it than just these people fighting all the time. What did they do in their free time? And I think the best links for some of the characters... Scarlet and Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes is the main character, then you have to give him some sort of relationship. Because if you give it to any almost any other character, I mean, what would the, would the readers really get that interested in wanting to read that? I mean, like <laughs> Ripcord and I mean, Bongo like, the Balloon Bear. Exactly. <laughs> I think, I think Larry Harmer, Larry Harmer tried that out for a while. I mean, it didn't it didn't hit off. I think with the readers, and he decided, okay, people want more snake eyes. Let's give them more snake eyes. Let's, let's build his his persona and the people around him. And I think it was very necessary to have him some, have some sort of relationship. The most obvious one would be with Scarlet, because, I mean, they're both ninjas to a certain degree. I mean, they have a lot of things that they can both get into. And just the way that she reads him, I always found very, very sweet, that she, could, she understood him so well, just from his mannerisms and his movements, that she could pick up his mood. <laughs> I... Snake you know, Eyes is saying, why don't we just <laughs> bomb the whole place with B-52s and that'll, that'll take care of our Lady Doomsday problem quite handsomely. Well, well perhaps it was a bit hokey in some way, but that's just the way that stories were told back then. I mean, no, relationships, I, I think, are handled, or, or at least seem to be handled much differently today in comics in general. Retro Harmer, he wanted to just, you know, to give fans something different, not just full on war all the time. He wanted to actually have characters doing human things, and the best way for him to do that was to take the main character and have stuff happen to him, other than just being fighting all the time. But you see, I feel that that could have been handled in a way that when I read the books, there aren't very many friendships amongst the Joes. They aren't like these big bosom buddies. There's very few of those in G.I. Joe itself. Maybe that's because the military mentality is a bond that's different to friendship, and I can understand that. But maybe a more of a friendship played out between Scarlet and Snake Eyes, for me, would have been a bit more palatable than a romance angle, because if she does understand him, that's great. She's the Timmy to Snake Eyes' lassie, and that's cool. But I just don't think it's a romantic thing. I I just feel it's out of place. Uh, I feel that... Snake Eyes would have, for example, saved anybody in that helicopter when it was going down. You know what I mean? And not just Scarlet, you know, and that it wouldn't have just been done because it was her. He would have done it out of a, his sense of duty or honor as a person, as a human being. And because of that romance with Scarlet, and there's no other relationship that Snake Eyes really makes, uh, aside from him and Stalker being sort of like friends from before, uh, him and his little feud with Storm Shadow, and then also his understanding with Quinn but he has very minimal friendships in the in the story and I don't know if that's meant to like tell us that Snake Eyes is very isolated and whatever but I just feel that the romance angle was just a bit much it's kind of maybe I'm just upset with romance in books and in movies and things being there and sort of feeling tacked on a lot and that is where my problem with it comes in. It's just tacked on. I don't feel that it's an important enough connection between the two of them. And I would natural. validate that you have got an unpopular opinion because I personally, and I think I speak for a lot of the fandom, I personally endorse 
Snake Eyes and Scarlet's romance, but I only endorse it when it's complex and compelling, as it should be. Okay. When it's a case of two professional soldiers, professional killers, operating in one of the most high-pressured jobs, really on the front lines, just taking comfort, human comfort in one another, and using their relationship as a way of the readers or viewers keying into these characters' lives and their inner monologues and their thoughts and the fact that they are, in fact, three-dimensional and not just you know, pop-up targets, I agree with. I think it, the romance has a valid place in the mythology and is useful in that storytelling sense. When I really start to lose my patience with it is when it paints a really rosy hearts and flowers kind of relationship between the two, which cannot exist. It should not exist. As my only real example of that, I can picture very vividly Snake Eyes, and this was in a Devil's Due comic, so maybe immediately all uh, all of our hands should be washed of it. But <laughs> I can picture a final panel of a comic with a very unscarred Snake Eyes showing up at a barbecue with a goofy grin on his face and a ring in his yeah. hand. And I just yeah, thought, see, that kind oh, of thing is hokey. Gross. Yeah, this guy is the most badass uber killer in the world. How can they show him in this light? These people are far too complex to to live normal lives, I think. And no, exactly. to, to allow them those moments of normality, I think, is to blush over exactly what it is that these guys are underneath their masks or body armor or whatever. I mean, it's there are Joes that are cut out to be family men, and there are Joes that aren't. Yeah, so that guy's... Please. He ate that. Like I said, the, the the romance is not a focal point, but it's played very cleverly in, in the background. And like you said, in some of the more heartwarming moments, uh, just reveal our characters uh, a bit better. Then then it's cool. But I just find that it's just it's such a a, a big thing. It's, it, it's never been played down. It's never uh, it's never been taken down a notch uh, ever since it was first sort of like revealed to us. Snake Eyes and Scarlet have always been a thing. They come together in the same. Uh, there's a two-pack of Snake Eyes and Scarlet. You know that kind of stuff. It's, it's never. Well, they did operate as done. a team in issue one. No, that is true. And I think I mean, that's what that two-pack was trying to emulate. But okay, fair enough. No, but I. But you know <laughs> what I mean. It's, it's always a thing. It's like it's like the couple on top of the wedding cake. It's just it's always that. It's like GI Joe's wedding cake couple, is Scarlet and Snake Eyes, and. Like, I agree with what you say. Snake Eyes is a complex human being. He is not a family man. He cannot be a family man. I mean, the guy can't speak, you know, for whatever. <laughs> no what, offense whatever. to all the disabled fathers out there who perhaps can't speak. What I'm trying to say is, is that as far as we know, I mean, Snake Eyes, he's a very damaged human being. It would be very difficult for him to have a family. And also, like you said, they're professional killers. When you start doing that, for as long as they have, it's very difficult to, to sort of become a civvy, I, I would imagine. That's why I think that relationship should be played very carefully and very intelligently, if it is done at all. Please don't step away from your original opinion. That's no, no, I still don't, don't think like they should. I'm just saying, if I had to back down and let it happen, for example, if I was in control of everything and I had to let it happen, that would be my criteria for it to happen. It must be smart, 
mustn't be a focal point, must only be realized in very small sections, and that's it. But I still stand very heavily on I don't like the Scarlet Snake Eyes romance thing. In some ways, and I'm going to get a huge boo from all of our listeners, in some ways, I think Duke and Scarlet are kind of more suited um, to each other, but once again, I don't want to get into that discussion because the whole, the nature of it bugs me. My unpopular opinion, I hate what's on your mind. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I love those guys. My real unpopular opinion is some of the best toys that G.I. Joe ever produced came in the New Sculpt era. Dun, no, dun, dun. <laughs> That's no, I, was say, I just went ice cold. I was like, what? <laughs> Yeah, yeah I love sense. those shoulder pads, like those gigantic, gigantic bulbous shoulders. You know, after our discussion, after our last episode, I oh, actually look. went, dug up my new sculpt era, okay? <gasps> I could dig them up, and, you know, to my surprise, their O-rings had, like, degraded to dust. Um, but I pulled them out, and I was just like, and with, with the intention of going, okay, you know what, maybe I'm just being too much of a hard-ass on these figures, you know, based on what I said on that episode. And I'm sorry, they are really crap. I, I'm sorry, I fucking hate those shoulders, and I'm, I really, really hate those shoulders. It, it upsets me so much. It, it, you know, I'm, I can rant, okay? You must understand, when I, when, when I first got my first modern era Joe from this line, um, with those big shoulders... I had to ask my parents to actually go and get them out of Toys R Us because I was at work. And I could hear my dad in the background going, why does Paul like this? Sh-? You mean my, new sculpt? Yeah. You said yeah, modern new era. Sorry, sorry, that's a new sculpt, not modern era. I, you know, when I rant, I don't think always. But I could hear him in the background <laughs> Only saying, when he rants, ladies and gentlemen. Only when he rants. Only when I rant. When I rant, exactly. <laughs> uh, I could just hear him in Afrikaans saying, what is this shit? You're a you know, fuck. What's his cock? What cock is it here? And and then when he saw my what shit is this here? And when he saw and when he saw the modern era stuff, when I first got my when I've got my first bunch of modern era stuff um, at nauseum, like as in I got my first um, seven pack, which was that Cobra seven pack. My dad saw them and thought these are actually really really cool. So I was like, but I thought you thought they were shit. And he's like, no, the other ones looked funny. I don't know why you liked them, but these ones look like small people. I like these. (laughs) My dad couldn't give two hoots about G.I. Joe, okay? Really. As far as he's concerned, it it wastes money that could be spent on something more important. But for him to like the modern era more than the new sculpt listeners, that says something. Okay, so I just want to put that out there. Go teeny. I'm glad I raised uh, What's on Your Mind because it was a an episode of theirs that got me thinking about this particular unpopular opinion that I have. They were speaking about the release of the Blu-ray of uh, the G.I. Joe Retaliation film. And that the, I suppose, in-store display advertising the Blu-rays or stocking the Blu-rays or shelving the Blu-rays, I should say, says on it, apparently, and I'm perhaps paraphrasing, the American heroes are back. And Chuck Dog 99 or Charles Emmanuel then gave out a very triumphant "Screw you, Europe," uh, and he's obviously very pleased to have GI Joe identified as an a American very hero. American military team. 
As a child, I had no problem with that. Maybe I should have. Maybe if I was a bit more of a a politicized person back then, I no, would have taken issue with it. Yeah. Now as an adult, I have a huge problem with the fact that my youth and adult collecting life has been spent idolizing a very American military team. Now, why should I give a shit? Well, I guess it leaves a bad taste in my mouth that in our current international political arena, with the United States often doing a lot of saber rattling, the heroes that occupy my imagination are all these stereotypical American, Team America, world police type dudes. Mm. And it's problematic. It's on the level that I don't want to be carrying one nation's agenda. Maybe the G.I. Joes transcended national agendas, but I can't make that leap. I can't imagine G.I. Joe not carrying out the wills of their masters, the American government. And politicizing your heroes like that is problematic. They're not just out there for the good of mankind. They're out there promoting one nation's views and aims. Okay, that's kind of, the, like kind of that's the major broad issue that I have with G.I. Joe being the real American heroes. But on a more minor quibble, none of the characters are multinational. Okay, there was one of two bones thrown into the line, like Skymate being from Australia, Big Ben being from England, and Big Bear being a Russian. But that's pretty much it. For the yeah, most part, all your toys spoke with an American accent. And when I see a figure like Ricondo, I can't help but think Australian. <laughs> Global Integrated Joint Operating Entity. That was going to be G.I. Joe's handle from Rise of Cobra. The acronym would actually spell out Global Integrated Joint Operating Entity. But they ditched that. I guess they got cold feet. I thought they were kind of onto something there. Something that they didn't follow through in the second film, but something that would just open up G.I. Joe to be a more international and perhaps more legitimate special forces group. The United States yeah. have plenty of those. They've got Delta yeah. Force. They've got Navy SEALs. They've got the Rangers. Every nation has their, I suppose, elite units. No, There's no international yeah. ultra-secret anti-terrorist task force. I suppose something like that couldn't effectively exist. But in our imaginations, it could. And that's why we kind of have Action Force to thank. They tried very desperately to keep their team from being too nation-specific. They were Action Force, subtitled International Heroes. The file cards changed the places of birth of the characters and often had minor rewrites of their file card to change place names. For instance, I think... Long Range is able to, on his European file card, fire a shell into the goalmouth at Wembley Stadium. That must have been something else in the American card, but I don't have the American card because I have a UK thunderclap. Wow, that's actually quite... So I quite liked the idea of G.I. Joe being multinational. 
And why not? All of a sudden, Hit and Run no longer was Hit and Run. He was South African. His codename was Boomslang. Yeah, I can see how that works. So perhaps my unpopular opinion in very short form is that as an adult, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth that G.I. Joe are real American heroes. I don't want my heroes to be nation-specific. I want them to just be heroes, not pushing any kind of national agenda, but actually just out there to save lives and stop Cobra. That is something that I must say resonates with me on on quite a deep level now as well, because you scour the file cards of all the G.I. Joes, and you go into the forums, and you got guys who love specific Joes or are upset that specific Joes have not yet been released because those G.I. Joes come from their hometown. So they have an emotional connection with these characters because these characters have, in essence, walked on the same soil that they have um, and have played in the same parks as they did when they were kids. We don't have that at all as South Africans. There's no other form of relation. I mean, if anything, there's probably more South Africans in Cobra than there are in G.I. Joe, (laughs) Uh, in essence. That makes really good sense. And... I know why his sentiment was one of, yeah, it's America, baby, or whatever it was that he said. I'm seriously paraphrasing, misquoting even. But I know why he said that, because the first G.I. Joe film has a very European feel. You can't really take that away from it. You can't say that it doesn't, because it really does. I mean, even starts off with Castle Destro. Well, Destro being Destro's ancestor, who cares? You guys have seen the movie, and if you haven't, well, it's up to you. But it does have an intensely European flavor. And I can see why you would say that. I don't see it as like a uh, as like a slant on anybody else. I mean, and I'm sure you don't either. But the fact that that sentiment is felt, it does make you feel a little more alienated from something that you really do love. And that is very interesting, actually. Now, I want to hear what Rob has to say. <laughs> you have a, an issue with the fundamental thing of what Jojo is you have a problem with the fact that they are American. I don't think kids growing up are too worried about politicizing things. I mean, they're American heroes because that's where they were made. They were made in America to appeal to an American market. There was no real worry about, oh, let's make an Australian hero, let's make a Brazil hero. And also, I mean, yes, they might be in the military answerable to you know, what are they called, the jugglers, but the, Hawk himself was, he wasn't always in line with what, what, with what the government was going on about, and the missions were very specific, they were going off Cobra, which mm. means that their missions were across the world anyway. They weren't focused on going, oh, America wants us to stop, you know, these terrorists, you know, we, they, want, they want us to stop these obviously and very clearly evil people called Cobra from destroying the planet. I I, I get where you're coming from. You're absolutely right. G.I. Joe managed to skirt political issues by making their bad guys a third party. G.I. Joe never went into conflict against another nation. And by extension, there was only America and then everything else was like Republic of Benin and... Uh, I can't think of yeah, the there, name there right now. Yeah, there were stand-ins for things, but those were people associated with Cobra. And 
something that was very obviously evil. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that Cobra was evil. I, I mean, guess I'm I just mourning the, the loss of the potential concept that we had in European Action Force releases and even the Japanese releases, which couched G.I. Joe as a kind of a global group and yeah, not nation-specific. That's, that's a different concept. The concept of G.I. Joe, yes, they are American heroes, but then so is the motto of Superman, you know, truth, justice, and the American way. But that doesn't mean that he stands for what the government says. He's just mm. in the ideals of what the, the American way stands for. I don't think um, a military group funded by taxpayers' money, ultimately, could ever be unpoliticized. Well, I, their mission, their prerogative was COBRA. The government has tasked them with going after COBRA. That's their only mission. They will never, ever be given any other mission, or they shouldn't be. I mean, that's what the rest of the military is for. That's what the Navy is for. That's what the Army is for. They are there to directly carry out the rules of the government. There's an awkward relationship that G.I. Joe has with its own armed forces because why don't those guys go after Cobra? What 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 sets G.I. Joe apart? They were tasked with that. They said, we, it's the government said, okay, we're going to set up a unit called G.I. Joe and they must go after COBRA. It's like saying, we've set up a part of the government that's going to take care of recycling. You don't expect the rest of the government, you know, who's taking care of education to suddenly go, oh, we better handle recycling. Here's, here's where I, I play, play double devil's advocate and say, why then couldn't they run with the idea of G.I. Joe being a global entity taking on members from all around the world to set it apart from the United States' own national armed forces and to give it a more international flavor. Every nation on the world has an interest in stopping Cobra. Yes, but it wasn't necessary for them to appeal to an international market. The objective was to create a toy line and characters that appeal to the American people. It's absolutely nothing to do with it. I mean, other countries appropriated this, this idea and created their own stuff based yeah, around exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. And yet here we are, three South African fellas, discussing G.I. Joe toys. It irks me now, as an adult, the fact that I am so very much wrapped up in, firstly, I suppose, glorification of violence. But that doesn't bug me as much as the fact that glorification of a national military unit. Yeah, but if you if you read the comics, if you watch the cartoons, if everything associated with G.I. Joe has absolutely nothing to do with the government. Also, the toys are for kids. No one's trying to push an, an agenda upon kids. Yes, obviously, the agenda is, you know, believe in America, but that's about as far as it goes. I don't think kids are thinking about politics. And if you have, like, really huge issues with G.I. Joe, maybe you shouldn't be connecting G.I. Joe or talking about it doesn't stop them from being fantastic toys. And I suppose it's open for me now to reposit G.I. Joe as a global group of international heroes. They're your toys. You can do whatever you want with them. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, yes, if you read a comic, you know that that is definitely, you know, Duke, he is an American hero. He is fighting Cobra. You know his character. But you can choose to do whatever you want with the toys. I guess what I'm saying is I wish there was a greater unity about what the concept of G.I. Joe was, and we could have gotten that out of Rise of Cobra. That could have been the turning point for our hobby. 
but it's mm. but I just don't they think shied it was away necessary. from it. It wasn't necessary. You don't need that. It's just, you know, like coming back to Superman, he doesn't have to be from Australia. Everyone across the world can relate to him. They can say he is my hero. He's Superman or Batman. Batman doesn't suddenly have to be from India for people in India to go, oh, I really like Batman. I just figured there was enough of a backlash to the idea of G.I. Joe being a global group. And the backlash probably was most vocal in the United States by hardcore fans who always regarded Joe as an American hero and an American icon. And why should they give G.I. Joe to the rest of the world when it is, in fact, the Americans we have to thank for this toy line? I guess uh, it just is always awkward for us international fans of G.I. Joe to feel slightly marginalized by its own credo. My friend's son likes G.I. Joe, and he is Afrikaans. And when he plays with toys, he speaks in English. That's the thing. He cannot identify those figures as speaking in his own language. And it was the same for me as well, being Afrikaans speaking when I was very, very young and had G.I. Joe's. I also spoke English when I played with my G.I. Joe's. The voices were also done in English. They were very, very funny. But they were also, they were in English. <laughs> but, I wish I could be a fly on the wall. Oh, dude, it was horrible. But the thing is now, guys in Europe, uh, in Holland and France and all that, who had G.I. Joe's voice, their file cards were in French and, you know, Dutch and German. And when they were acting these characters out, I wonder if they spoke in English. That is something to consider. Because that does actually change something. That does... Although you may not think of it as pushing a political agenda, it definitely does push a weird social agenda. Not that the toys were designed to do that, okay? I mean, I don't think the Ninja Turtles were designed to do that, and kids also played with Ninja Turtles and spoke with English voices and Afrikaans. You know, Exolio Grey, Leonardo, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, if that I was to happen. guess, and yeah. uh, I'm basing this on very flimsy evidence, but I think our European friends would have stayed in their mother tongues when playing with G.I. Yeah. Joes. And the evidence that I have in that regard is uh, domestic TV in Europe is completely dubbed. You yeah. can get by in your mother tongue and not have to change channels. You'll be watching films that are dubbed completely and seamlessly into your language. In fact, I think there's a guy who is the voice of Bruce Willis. In Holland. Mm. Like, every time there's a Bruce Willis part, Bruce Willis role in any film, he is the voiceover artist for that character. Oh, cool. So, if people from Holland ever heard Bruce Willis's actual voice, it wouldn't sound right to them. Because there is one guy who is always Bruce Willis one in the dubs. Guy. Anyway, so I, I just imagine the cartoons would have all been dubbed any media that related to G.I. Joe would have been in Dutch or French or German or Spanish. I'm actually, I can't even get across how, how offensive this opinion is to me. It's like, <laughs> you, it's, that's what G.I. Joe is. They're an American hero. If you have a problem with that, just don't kill G.I. Joe. No, listen, it I, need I, to be changed. I hear what you're saying. It's, yeah. it's wow. <laughs> this is really annoying me. All right, well, clearly, once again, a unpopular opinion. Hey, Paulie, I think you're up, buddy. My next one. 
sorry, I just saw a tweet here where it's got um, Oko and that big elephant guy from He-Man, whose name I don't know, but they're all doing lines on a table. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> the, the secret behind Orko's magic. <laughs> I like it. I, I approve. Anyway. Um, fairy dust. Yeah, fairy dust. Anyway. Okay. Jeez, now I feel bad because I'm going to offend Rob now when I say this next one, and he really feels pretty offended. <laughs> Fuck it. I'm going to do it. Dreadnoughts are cool. And I love Cold Slither. That song is the business. Okay. I have recently found over time that people don't like the Dreadnoughts. They sort of think that they're lame, that they're sort of plugged in there, they have no purpose, uh, that, that they just suck. And I'm sorry, I, I completely disagree. I really loved the Dreadnoughts when I first got sort of introduced to them. My first introduction to Dreadnoughts was through Roadpig because they mentioned he was part of the Dreadnoughts. And I'm like, who the hell are the Dreadnoughts? And then we got our hands on some of the cartoon, and I'm like, oh, those are the Dreadnoughts. So I was always continuously looking out for Roadpig, who doesn't really appear in the cartoon, except for uh, Deke, I think. And I, I stand corrected here, because I don't watch Deke a lot. But the Dreadnoughts are awesome. And I think the role that they play, even though in the actual comic book, it's never like brought out this much. But I think that they're important. I mean... Essentially, Cobra Commander is starting up a group of people. He's starting up an army, a private army. And he's selling this private army to people as a new way to live, as, as a way to fight against the government that has treated them unfairly, as a, as a way to sort of stand up for themselves. And if any of you guys have ever been to one of these seminars where they want you to make money, you know, you know these pyramid schemes, you go through to like some massive seminar and they give you this major empowering motivational chat and they tell you how easy it is. You just have to con all your friends to con other people in and then you start making money and it's just amazing. That's how Cobra would operate. So these are your neighbors. These are people you went to school with. Not everybody is sold on what they're selling, but people know that if they don't get themselves involved, they're okay. And the people that are involved, well, they've convinced themselves that this is a really good thing then being conned and they're not being brought into some kind of illegal business or whatever and they can carry on with their lives and have a good conscience about it now the dreadnoughts represent a side of the cobra organization that has to get their hands dirty for cobra because cobra can't expect all of the troops in the beginning or cobra troopers when he's starting out cobra he can't expect them to go and do major raids on places he can he can encourage them and he can get them to sort of attack certain military positions and things like that. But he can't ask them to go and do below the belt kind of, you know, get in there kind of wet work stuff. And that is why I think the dreadnoughts are important and why they're there in the first place. These guys are scum. They're criminals. They're anarchists. They believe in Cobra's New World Order. And they're the dudes that are going to go in and do all of this horrible shit. And they don't care if they're getting paid for it. Whereas the typical Cobra company man, you know, aka the standard blue shirt, might have some personal reservations about maybe burning down, I don't know, a block a of houses or a hospital or whatever like that. You know? Where the Dreadnoughts would happily do it. Especially because they can get in there and can do it, and then Cobra can send in his blue shirts and they can go and make everything so much better. That's why I think the Dreadnoughts belong, because that's what they're there for. 
They're there to help Cobra look good and look legitimate. They're there to legitimize Cobra. And that is my argument for the Dreadnoughts. <laughs> so Cobra's main plan is to send in a team of Dreadnoughts to sow anarchy, and then Cobra comes in and saves the day. Well, oh. it's not the only plan, but it's one way of looking at it. It's one way of uh, legitimizing their existence. I feel I need to because of how many people dislike the Dreadnoughts and how many people think that they're kind of misplaced. But like I said, I love them. I like the fact that they, they're really nuts. I'm not a big fan of IDW's Dreadnought plants. And by saying that, I mean I don't really like Burnout and Zartan's daughter, Zanyo, whatever. I'm not like big on them. But the core Dreadnoughts, they're not dumb people. You know, in the cartoon, they're portrayed as these like ignoramuses. But in the comic book and in the file cards, we know that they're not altogether stupid, especially in, in uh, Buzz's case, disgruntled teacher, you know? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure the file cards are all that helpful in, in disproving some of the, the Dreadnought's stupidity. But whatever. <laughs> Let's hear whatever. what our devil's advocate has to say about the Dreadnought's. Yes, Cobra Commander goes around converting people to be part of his organization. Surely anyone who would join his organization would be a true believer. They would be into what he's studying, and he would only get people who believe in his worldview. So therefore the people in the uniforms are true believers. And they can do everything the Dreadnoughts can do, and better, because they're better organized. So Cobra people, they don't have to always be wearing the uniform. I mean, look at the, mm. Crimson, the Crimson Guards. I mean, they're used in undercover missions. And even convert entire towns, you know, mm. then they become Cobra people. I just don't see that. I just don't see the actual place. Everything that the Dreadnoughts do it can be done so much better and more organized by actual people who are ready blue shirts. Take the blue shirts off. They go and they cause the anarchy, and then they put stuff on and they go in and they save or whatever. You know, they they put a good face on. And to me, they're just silly. They're silly and unnecessary. They're just... Uh, I don't know. They're just too Saturday morning for you. They're too rocksteady bebop. <laughs> yes. I mean, even if their characterization in the comics are perhaps a bit more serious or nuanced, I just don't feel they have any place at all in, in the G.I. Joe story. It's Cobra versus G.I. Joe. Uh, I take... you making me angry. I take exception. <laughs> I take exception to you saying that liking the Dreadnoughts is an unpopular opinion, Paul. I'm going to oh, yeah? call bullshit on that. While Rob doesn't like the Dreadnoughts, I've been won over to liking them, and I know you're a fan, Paul. So, you know, two against one—that is not an unpopular opinion. Okay, not a yeah, but, us. but oh, yeah. you but think I mean, that the Dreadnoughts like, uh, yeah. are are disliked in the wider community? Yeah, a lot of people don't like them. I'm prepared like, to say that it's it's divided, sure, but also along the lines of about a 2-1 split. Okay. If I was to so, guess... Okay, so 66% of people like them and 30% don't. 33%. So 33.3. Well, yeah, so that means actually it's not an unpopular opinion. It's, it's an opinion of the masses. Yeah, Paul. Sorry, buddy. Oh, but like, <laughs> that's Failure. interesting because, yeah, but I mean, for example, 
And so, just so you guys know why I'm basing this and why I feel that liking the Dreadnoughts is an unpopular opinion, it comes from, well, firstly, the five pack of the Dreadnoughts didn't do that well. They're still on BBTS on clearance, so there's that. And also, I just see it a lot on histank.com uh, when somebody mentions Dreadnoughts or whatever, a lot of people are always very quick to, to put them down. And that's just to enforce my opinion on it, because... I just don't see a lot of love for the Dreadnoughts. And, you know, you said it as well. You've recently turned over to, to liking the Dreadnoughts. But, you know, but that's also because, like myself, you have a... And sorry, I'm talking to you, Steve, when I said this. Um, <laughs> like myself, you also have an understanding of the Dreadnoughts that is not necessarily how the Dreadnoughts were designed from an initial standpoint, but rather something that you've helped to fabricate within the, the toy line itself for you to make them more acceptable to you by extension, for you to appreciate your buzzer, torch, and ripper figures more. You know, because like they are awesome. Because I didn't think that in the super soldier realm of G.I. Joe versus Cobra, where you have extremely crack G.I. Joe troops coming up against very insidious and well-equipped Cobra enemy, I didn't ever think the Dreadnoughts would be a heavyweight kind of threat. Mm. I've since then revised my position to thinking that Hang on, these are very unpredictable, very violent, very psychologically unstable individuals. And they should be treated as much a threat or even more of a threat than the more conventional Cobra troops. Yeah, so I, I, I kind of have found favor with them being a legitimate challenge for a G.I. Joe team to overcome. Rob, you mentioned um, an organized military is more efficient. It is, but in the case of the Nazis, not every German was a Nazi, okay? Meaning that even the men and women who served in the German army as Nazi troops didn't come out of there fully appreciating what Hitler was trying to do. And a lot of cases were doing it to protect their families or to protect themselves from sort of social problems, you know, from being rejected, ostracized by a greater society, being turned into an enemy, being gassed, etc., etc. So... There are a lot of instances where Nazis had done very, dare I say, conscious-laden things, especially in the middle of the war where, you know, you hear stories of when it was Christmas, they stopped shooting at each other, they chilled out for a day. <laughs> you, you hear about a lot of very human you know, things. the First World War for. The point I'm making is that it's a military force comprised of people's families, uh, people who have things to fight for, not necessarily just agendas. So... Once again, not every German was a Nazi, and not every one of them supported Hitler's ideal, even if they started off believing in that in the first place. The Dreadnoughts, however, are full retard. Okay, they are going to, and I'm sorry, I'm quoting uh, Tropic Thunder, that awesome movie, because I love it. But they would be that person. They would be completely Gestapo about it. They are quite happy, for lack of better words, but they're quite happy to hurt people. And they're quite happy to do it with reckless abandon. That's why I feel that they're necessary. Yes, they look hokey, and I think a lot of their design comes from the fact that the 80s were wrought with these sort of motorcycle gangs and sort of gang violence that was dressed in a similar fashion as the Dreadnoughts, so it was very easy for children to identify them as bad guys. Because I know when I see them first time, I'm like, yeah, they're bad guys. You know, and that, that's a very 80s stigma for them as well. So I get that. I mean, I guess yeah. they're true believers, but I just don't get why they can't just wear the uniforms. I mean, they need the to make attractive have a whole toys. bunch. And Torch okay. is the biggest dick of any original O-Ring-style G.I. Joe ever. 
Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's hung low. <laughs> yeah. You don't believe me, listeners? See for yourself. Yeah, yeah. everyone, go go check out your, your toys. <laughs> well, you need a you need to buy a torch, but uh, that's yeah. not going to happen. Side, prof- side profile on that right. guy's crotch piece is uh, is obscene. Yeah, we'll post <laughs> a pic of it on Facebook. <laughs> My third and final unpopular opinion. I don't like the USS flag. Well, you can give me yours. <laughs> and it can happen. Yeah. I, I like speak from a position of owning one, but it's not a very good place. It, it uh, got its hype because it is massive. But when you boil it down and break it down into its component parts, it's... Not really a place it. It's a plastic table. It's a table. The tower, fair enough, is a place it. But one tower does not an aircraft carrier make. It should be a vehicle. And if they were really firing on all cylinders, it would be able to float. How amazing would that be? Okay. That would be I'm amazing. dreaming. Wake me up. But it doesn't even have wheels. And it's hella frail. It's deck plating that sits on top of a set of trusses. And can't be moved. Granted, I mean, if it did have wheels, getting it through a doorway would be nigh impossible. And trust me, I've tried. But it's just not quite up to snuff, if you're asking me. And I enjoy it because it's an enabler. It allows you to better appreciate items like the Sky Striker. But it's a standalone toy. It's not much of a toy. It's a static display piece. It's a base for you to populate your figures. But you know what else works as a base? A table or a couch or a hill. So I'm not entirely sure what it is that the flag is meant to do apart from just sit there and help you display your toys it's a rather functionless centerpiece which is too large to be any adequate fun on its own and too under designed to really reach its potential and uh, it's far too vast for me to display in any way shape or form so my flag investment sits in the cupboard. And I don't know if I'll ever live in a place that can fully accommodate that toy. It needs its own room. And if it is occupying a room, it occupies the room. There's very little else you could do in a room with a flag in it. Unless it's a very big room. But who the hell has one of those lying around spare? Without their significant other giving them flack. <laughs> So yes, in short, G.I. Joe's finest holy grail, the USS Flag, centerpiece to many a collection, and the envy of most of us, is shit. Isn't shit a very harsh way to say it? Uh, I'm going to try and redeem it, I guess, but that really is Rob's job. No, no. I'm not going to try and redeem it. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, you could have quite happily in the 1985 series given us three other vehicles of 
varying but moderately substantial size instead of one gigantic piece like that. It's a crowd pleaser, but its appeal is purely superficial. It cuts so many corners to have its massive size that it is a rather unsubstantial, massive table. You've lost all connection with G.I. Joe and collecting <laughs> and, and the concept of G.I. Joe. I should just give up. Yes, I don't understand why you collect G.I. Joe. Because it says G.I. Joe on the box. You, if you have so many fundamental problems with, with, with fundamentals of what G.I. Joe is and, and some of its greatest assets, and, and ideas. Yeah, it's a gigantic table, but that's because it has to be. It's an aircraft carrier. Just contrast it with its later Holy Grail item. The Defiant is a de facto vehicle. It rolls along the ground, albeit, I mean, I'm pretty sure Defiants that have survived to this day don't roll along the ground too well, if they roll at all. But it is a completely three-dimensional, interactive toy. Whereas the flag is completely hollow on one side and has a very flimsy plastic strap to fill in its hull on the other side. But it has so much functionality, it still does a lot of stuff. I mean, the tower in itself is, is a wonderful thing. It has the, the missiles, it has the little vehicles it comes with. It, it does a lot of stuff. It, I mean, they, they did as much as they could with something of that size. For what it is, it's, it's an aircraft carrier. It fulfills what it, it needs to do. It stands there. You can land aircraft onto it. You can put figures into the tower, control them, control the, the movement of the aircraft. It, it does what it needs to do. It's functional. It's big enough so you can put aircraft on it. The opinions you have are not so much unpopular opinions, but to me they sound like opinions of someone, of a non-fan of Giorgio. <laughs> Granted. I think if you're seven years old or eight years old and you got the flag, I think you'd shit your pants. I think that's what the flag is. I think that's the power of the flag. That's what makes it great. I know where you're coming from, and I think Rob is right. The opinion that you're throwing out is that of a non-G.I. Joe fan and coming from a person of no understanding of the toy line or looking at the toy line in a very pragmatic point of view and saying, hey, that's a really big piece of plastic that cost you a lot of money. You could have bought a computer. And and you car. could have. Or a small car. Yeah, you could have. <laughs> but at the time it car. came out, yes, it was expensive, but at the same time, it was something that people wanted. You must think about it in the context of when it came out, not the context of collecting now. Giorgio has yeah. moved on from vintage collecting. They've created a new image for Giorgio, the modern era Joe. And that yeah. is what G.I. Joe is now. I get that. That's why I'm jumping back and forth. That's why I'm saying, like, as a kid, you would have shed your pants. Because if you saw yeah. a big box under your Christmas tree and, it, and you're a G.I. Joe fan, you were like, I hope it's not a bike. I hope it's not a bike. I hope it's not a bike. <laughs> you know? Now, you kind of look at a flag with this sort of awe because, you know, we never had it. Maybe as kids, we, we never experienced it. So purchasing a flag, is it's going back in time. You are being able to enjoy an experience that you felt as a kid you should have had, as a G.I. Joe fan that you should have, and the big worry in your life right now is how, how much you're going to pay to ship that bad boy here. And I understand how that arriving now as an adult and having spent a lot of money on it, 
how that could actually, how it could lose its veneer, how it can lose a lot of what made it special because you're looking at it and essentially it becomes a big, like you said, Steve, a big hollow plastic table that hasn't got much functionality to it other than having a well-detailed control tower. But, but then that's also why being an adult is different from being a kid. You can you can exactly. customize, change, you can make it what you want it to be. Yes, it's not everything you want it to be now, but for a kid, yeah. that's everything that they want. That's everything that they need. You have to be able to look at it in a, in a different light. But if you can't look at it like a kid, you must look at it like an adult and think, yes, you can customize, and you have customized it. You've, you've filled in many of the holes of what you you see in it now as being completely useless and unnecessary. You've added lights, you've added wheels, you've added extra decks. You've made it what you want it to be. Yep. I think we can decisively say that this is indeed an unpopular opinion. Yeah, yeah. I would say. I'm sure a lot of people out there are very like, the fuck? <laughs> you know? Well, in say? spite <laughs> of what I say about it being a rather poor playset, I must just say that Christmas of 2010, when I was together with Robert and our mutual friend Alistair, hauling the flag parts out of the massive boxes that it came in and assembling that sucker, it was a very, very happy time in my life. That's all you needed from it. Very memorable. So, regardless of its failings as a fun toy... The flag is an institution and regarded very warmly in my memories. Our final unpopular opinion is yours, Paul. Ah, I've got two. What? Wow. I've, I've got you two. You have more unpopular I, I, opinions than Stephen does? How's that I know, shocker. And I didn't expect to, to be honest. I didn't expect to, but it is something, after having watched the G.I. Joe movie recently, as you, as you guys know, and I, I was thinking about it, and I was kind of like, hmm, I'm doing my 11-year-old self a favor by saying this. Two things. Firstly, Cobra Law. Okay? I actually like Cobra Law. <laughs> it does have issues. I'm not blind. I'm not like, oh my god, Cobra Law is the best thing ever. But I do like it. I do like it within its universe. And that universe is the cartoon universe. Should Cobra Law be brought into comic books? No. Should Nemesis Enforcer be brought into comic books? No. That stuff should all stay in the cartoon realm because what better way to make Cobra a decent villain other than to actually make him some kind of creature? The thing is, if you turn around and tell kids that Cobra is this clandestine organization that's trying to throw over the government by slowly converting people into troopers and getting them to change the world into some new world order... Kids are going to be like, okay, but if you turn him, if eventually you turn him into, firstly, he's a, he's a complete cop, okay, let's not mess around. He's always running away from danger. He's always a bit of a, an idiot. He does all of these fundamentally bad things in terms of being a human being. You know, he's a complete coward. He, uh, he's dishonest. He, you know, he's, he's arrogant. He's very self-serving. Those are bad things. Those are morals kids can learn. And then you turn him into like some kind of monster, and then you you know you have a complete package. And I think Cobra Law really does that. And I think the fact that Cobra Law also looks down at Cobra Commander in disgust is kind of cool as well because I felt sorry for Cobra Commander uh, when I watched the movie when I was a kid. I was like, this poor guy. I mean, yeah, I'm sure he's bad, 
But he's actually his own worst enemy. But I wouldn't think of it that way. I was just like, shame, he's bad. He's a bad guy. But these guys are really bad. I would have liked to have seen how G.I. Joe, as a cartoon, would have gone further had they had Cobra Law stay in there and, and made them a more uh, focused enemy. It's something uh, of, a, of a criticism that I have for the original cartoon series and for Deke is that Cobra are always the focus, but G.I. Joe will always win. Okay, that's 80s cartoons and early 90s cartoons. That's always going to happen. But there's no really big bad. If you look at a lot of other cartoon series, there was always somebody a little bit worse than who they were going up against. He-Man had Hordak, although He-Man never really had Hordak uh, face-to-face. I think he was there once or twice. Not a He-Man expert. But Hordak is worse than Skeletor. He's like more badass than Skeletor. I like Cobra Law. I like the fact that it's some freaky alien race that's been living on the planet for like forever and they're the real reason that Cobra exists and I think it works really well for a Saturday cartoon and I think people who dislike it are trying to look too deep. They're trying to turn the cartoon into something way deeper than it should be. And I like them. I like Cobra Law. I would have totally bought Globulus and Nemesis Enforcer as a kid. I have no love for Nemesis Enforcer right now as a toy because I think he looks like ass. But I would have totally bought them as kids because I bought, I've totally bought into that idea fully. I love that idea. I was always like, it actually creeped me out, the idea of the spores turning everybody into mutants. That freaked me out as a kid. I was like, that's, that's nasty. That's not cool. You know, I don't want to wake up the clam or something. You know? <laughs> But, yeah, I like Cobra Law, and I know that the majority of the Joe fan hates it, and that it's, it's something that is much maligned and is often the butt of G.I. Joe fan jokes. But I think Cobra Law is cooler than Rise of Cobra and Retaliation. So what do you say to that, Rob? What do you say to me liking Cobra Law? <laughs> I think your, your points are valid. I mean, it, it, it creates a more interesting and varied villain. But I just think that it also changes the fundamentals of what G.I. Joe is, G.I. Joe versus Cobra. And it also overcomplicates things. You didn't need that. You just needed to be, make Cobra more effective in a way and just play them differently. Perhaps that's just the fault in the writing of the, of the cartoon series is that they didn't play them up properly. I just think it overcomplicates things. Why do you need to add an extra layer? Like, oh, there's someone else behind Cobra that's even more evil. And also, I mean, I like your idea about the, the bad qualities. You know, he has bad qualities, and these are things that kids should, should malign and shouldn't be like that. But then saying that he's a snake, and it's like, oh, actually, yeah, he's got bad qualities, but that's because he's, he's a snake. You know, he's not human. It's, it's not that he's, he's bad in himself. It's because he's, a, he's not actually human at all. And then that kind of also undermines those ideas of those bad qualities and having them be bad. Is that, so the trivi- it's not something that, that people, it trivializes it in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it overcomplicates things. It undermines what G.I. Joe versus Cobra is. It's a very cool idea, but I just don't think it belongs in G.I. Joe. I think if, if they come up with a concept perhaps in a different type of TV series, maybe that would have been cool. I think perhaps they were just trying to force this idea into what G.I. Joe versus Cobra is, and it's completely unnecessary. I fully agree with the fact that Snake Eyes is not a big bad Mama Bajamba in the original animated series. I'm actually glad that Snake Eyes is, for lack of better words, a little bit of a, a gimp. 
in the original cartoon series. <laughs> I would have accepted second tier character or cameo, but you went with Gimp. Yeah, because he <laughs> is actually. I mean, the the one mo- true moment of awesome that Snake Eyes has in the entire animated series is when he um, has the radioactive isotope sit away, and then him and Scarlet like look at each other. And Scarlet's like, okay, he's going to sacrifice himself, and we're never going to see Snake Eyes again, and that's cool. You know? I'm like, that's and like... very hectic, adult, you know? very grown up. Yeah, very much so, and it's very cool. I like that. And then later on, you see him in the background, and he's just getting punched, and he gets kicked in buildings, and then he tries to shoot a Cobra Law God at point-blank range instead of just, you know, kicking him. <laughs> you know, he does these, like, really dumb things. They, like, kind of made him a, a, a bit of a Todd. Um, and but I'm okay with that because it allows other characters in the show to breathe. It allows us to get to know Leatherneck and Deep Six and uh, Tunnel Rat. Okay, by definition, Tunnel Rat's only in the movie, but it allows us to get to know these other characters better. When everything is so Snake Eyes centric in the Jovos, it's really nice to have Snake Eyes not be the central feature. Because if you watch Resolute and Renegades. Snake Eyes once again becomes this sort of show-stealing character again. You know, a big part of the finale for Resolute, and, and I love Resolute, but it is his showdown with Storm Shadow, and that's okay, that's very cool. They throw him in there, and then they have him killing all those, those Ali Vipers in the forest there. That stuff is very cool to watch, and it's awesome, and, and it was great, and I'm glad it got some airtime. But I really love that he's fairly non-existent in the original American Hero series. And I didn't like that in the beginning as a kid because I loved Snake Eyes so much. I was like, wow, I wish there was more Snake Eyes. I wish Snake Eyes wasn't so pathetic. But it kind of makes Storm Shadow cooler as well. It makes Storm Shadow a little bit more, I don't know, dangerous. You know, you have a ninja and he can like chop a tank five or six times with his hand and then the tank falls apart. And that's really cool because Snake Eyes is not his equivalent (laughs) in the cartoon. But it does. It, It makes the bad guys much better and more enjoyable and makes it makes G.I. Joe have something uh, a bit tougher to fight instead of, you know, our hero Snake Eyes doing everything. Please understand, listeners and you guys, I love Snake Eyes. I think one of the reasons I love G.I. Joe is Snake Eyes. I just find that as I've grown up, I've grown to love a lot more about G.I. Joe than just Snake Eyes. And seeing how pasted he is in front of everything is kind of... I find that Snake Eyes' presence in a lot of ways is sort of dimin- uh, d- uh, diminishing what G.I. Joe is in some regards. I'm focusing here primarily on what has happened in the modern G.I. Joe stuff because, you know, Snake Eyes is very on the covers, very doing this, very, you know, he's always there. And even the kids that I teach Kung Fu to, they know who Snake Eyes is, but they don't know who Duke is or Slint is or whatever. It's cool. And I mean, yeah, he's got star power. He's great. But I love, like I said, I do love that he's not in the original animated series. And I know that that is an unpopular opinion because I know a lot of people would have liked more of him in the original animated series. I wanted to slide that in there with my I Love Cobra Law. Very good. (laughs) I have two observations which I'd like to quickly throw in. I think people dislike Cobra Law as a concept because it only ever got fleshed out in one animated feature film. I think if it became a major theme in a series of the G.I. Joe animation, there could be more scope for 
people to be won over to its side. But if you're not a fan of the animated movie, you would hate Cobra Law almost immediately. G.I. Joe, as a cartoon, as we know, got cancelled. At least the Sunbow run of it got cancelled. And Cobra Law and the Rawhides, which were going to be perhaps that season's main focus, mm-hmm. never got the attention they deserved. So we're that's basically true. left with a movie and little else. And that's why that's I, I imagine Cobra Law missed out on, on having any kind of real following. My second observation has to do with Snake Eyes in the cartoon. And I'd just like to mourn the fact that Sunbow and the producers of that original cartoon, I think it was Marvel as well, really missed an opportunity to make cartoon history by not giving Snake Eyes some focus. During the Sunbow run, they often isolated specific characters and gave them an episode. Dusty had the traitor, two-parter. Even Airtight got a featured episode. Yeah. I think it was the germ. Yes, and it was a very trippy episode too, if if memory serves. Oh, yeah. But never did Snake Eyes get a one-shot. And I think it would have been fascinating to try and spin a story around a character that was mute. It would be Uh, akin to... I'd like to think... Yeah, to Larry Harmer's issue number 21. But even more interesting, if it involved Snake Eyes doing something perhaps more mundane, like taking off his armor and just being a guy for a day, doing his shopping. Scaring children in the streets with his scarred face. (laughs) Yeah, they did not touch on that at all. If you didn't do anything but watch the cartoon... You wouldn't know why Snake Eyes wears that black-looking gimp suit all of the time. Mm-hmm. You'd just think, oh, it makes him more effective as a breakdancer. <laughs> <laughs> I think the honest reason why Snake Eyes was never put in the original G.I. Joe, a real American hero TV series, was because Snake Eyes sold himself. He didn't need to be sold. In fact, as I understand it, he was the best-selling figure um, in all of his years. He would sell out, and I know this to be true from personal experience in that I saw him once on the shelf, and if I didn't pick him up, I wouldn't see him again for a very long time. So he didn't need to be sold. Somehow his personal mystique sold him. So the other toys needed much better advertising, and let's not kid ourselves. That show is a toy commercial, (laughs) Uh, as were many 80s shows. They were all toy commercials with a semblance of, of a story in them and with morals tacked into them. Yeah. Never I mean, underestimate the selling power of a black-clad action figure with an Uzi. Yeah, I mean, somehow that just resonated well with kids of the era, and with us, and with the kids of this era. They love Snake Eyes. Although, I must say, uh, Snake Eyes didn't sell too well when Rise of Cobra came out. There were still tons of them on the shelf. But I can guess there were even more shelved versions of Scarlet. And Cobra Commander's probably all over the place, too. And Ice Viper. What? Ice Viper. It's not the Ice Viper we know and love, but I think he's still a great toy. Well, great is not a fair thing to say. I think he's a good toy. He's fun. He adds to my Arctic compliment. Rob, you wanted to say, dude. This time, I can't really be devil's advocate, because I actually also quite like that he wasn't the main focus. I think in the comics, perhaps he is too much of the main focus. I like 
it's when there's an opportunity to highlight other characters. And actually, I should probably watch the cartoons to actually get to see other characters get some time in the spotlight. Because you've got such a varied cast of characters, it's just unfortunate that they don't get an opportunity to be featured. And also, with the focus of, once again, Seneca coming back into the focus in Jojo Resolute, the guy who wrote it, Warren Ellis, who's quite a prolific comic book writer, he was not a fan of Jojo. So he came yeah. from the outside seeing what was the big things about Jojo, and he took the good stuff and the stuff that he saw that was important to Jojo, and he kind of mashed that up and he said, okay, this is what they enjoy, let me give them what they like. And yeah. what he gave us was very cool, a, a more mature take on what Jojo is, and, and it's really cool. Someone seeing it from the outside and still making it very, very Jojo. So I suppose that's my unpopular opinion, is that I think Snickers doesn't always have to be all that. Totally. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> he doesn't have to be all that. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think that's an unpopular opinion at all. But maybe that's yeah. my unpopular opinion of your unpopular oh, no. opinion. Oh, no. Triple it's unpopular, unpopular opinion, opinion ourselves. Yes, <laughs> so it's a popular opinion amongst us. <laughs> a popular unpopular opinion. Oh, yeah. my head's spinning. But I think uh, that's the debate, gentlemen. That would conclude our unpopular opinions episode. Ho, ho. Yeah. So the flag sucks and... Uh, Scarlet and Snake Eyes shouldn't have shacked up. Modern era figure sculpts are garbage. And Cobra Law apparently rocks hard. And Diageo <laughs> is apparently too American. <laughs> <laughs> we thank you for joining us on our mission to stop Diageo podcasts from sucking. We hope you'll tune in to us next time, whenever that is, whenever we feel up to it. And please, by all means, get hold of us. Comment, write, snail mail, email. Rant. Da-da-da-da-da-da. You can find us on Facebook. Our Facebook profile is under G.I. Joburg, one word. You can find us on Podbean at gijoburg.podbean.com. Or you can find us on iTunes. Do it. Do it now. And our videos are on YouTube. G.I. Awesome. Or you can check out Rob's new video reviews under No Clarity Here. So reach out and touch us, G.I. Joe Burgers. If you like that. <laughs> just like Torch. <laughs> yeah, just like Torch. <laughs> but he doesn't have to use his hands. <laughs> he reaches out and touches us. Is that with his same throw? Uh, well, it'll light your sometimes fire. Sometimes I poorly. don't think I get these. Sometimes I don't think I get these 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 jokes, these under the table jokes. <laughs> <laughs> he tries to keep it under the table, but that monster, it does what it wants. <laughs> yeah, Joe Berg. Good night. Sleep well. This is Steve, and I'm Paul, and Robert. Yeah. Say good night. Adios. Adios. Goodbye. Cheers. Good night, good night.